I'm an accidental entrepreneur. You know, I started Box of Crayons about 20 years ago because, well, frankly, I'd just been fired from the job I had and I was slowly coming to realize that I was largely unemployable. Not because I didn't have some skills, I have mad skills, but because I just wasn't good with, you know, bosses and hierarchy and just some of the things that come with working in a biggish organization. And, you know, mostly because I'd been fired. As well as accidental, I'd say I'm also a barely adequate entrepreneur. I mean, both the companies I've started have had some success. They've made the world a bit better, which I'm mostly proud of, and employed great people, which I'm definitely proud of, and also made enough money for a good life. I mean, honestly, just keeping a company going for 20 years is, you know, that's actually pretty cool, and that's pretty hard to do. But trust me, I'm not going to be making an appearance on Shark Tank or Dragon's Den anytime soon. You know, the truth of it, actually, is I don't think I'm an entrepreneur at all. It's too loaded a word. It's too fancy a word. It sort of implies that I'm trying to create a billion-dollar business. But, you know, maybe I'm just confused. Just what is an entrepreneur anyway? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. I met Seth Levine through Matthew Barzen. Now, sharp-eared listeners will know that Matthew was a previous guest. And I'll say again, his new book, The Power of Giving Away Power, really is terrific. Seth is a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, so right at the heart of being and thinking about entrepreneurship. Now, I'm not sure what image comes to mind for you when you think Silicon Valley VC. I've got a bunch in my head. And I think you're going to find Seth a little different from that. But what's true is that Seth's love of entrepreneurship started young. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent, right? I, you know, when I was younger, I was that kid who would, you know, go off to the candy store and buy the box of, uh, you know, of, of, of gum and, and sell it off one piece at a time. I, I also came up with this sort of this SaaS, this subscription as a or software as a service. It was not software, but this SaaS related idea. I was a, like a lot of kids, I shoveled, I uh, grew up in the Northeast, I shoveled snow to make money. Um, and I came up with this idea that I would uh, sign people up to a subscription plan <laughs> and they would pay me a certain amount per month uh, for the, you know, the three months or so that was winter. And no matter how uh, many times it snowed, I would then go shovel their walk. Ah, uh, yeah. I've known people like this. People who come out of the womb thinking through the business model and figuring out how to scale things. People like that always seem to have more than one thing going on. I'm a cheerleader, I like to say, for entrepreneurs. Uh, and so I work with entrepreneurs or other venture funds really globally. I do a lot in uh, Africa, a couple markets in Africa, and I do a lot in the Middle East as well, which has been super interesting. Um, and then my third job is I, I'm also a writer of, of sorts. I, uh, I guess I can say that now because I have a published book. The book is called The New Builders. It's about people like me, but also not like me. More recently, I've, I've written, along with my co-author, Elizabeth McBride, a book about really about the changing nature of entrepreneurship and the future of entrepreneurship. It's a little critical of Silicon Valley, which is, is sort of an interesting angle to think about. But, um, but I felt like I had a really a good position to write a book like this uh, that describes, it's called The New Builders. We describe this next generation of entrepreneurs, which are, who are much more likely to be female, black, um, people of color, immigrants uh, than they were you know, 30, 40 years ago. And really, we call out 
what is something that most people don't recognize uh, going on in the United States, which is this profound decline in entrepreneurship uh, in the U.S., which is really troubling. Part of what I do love about starting my own company, being an entrepreneur, if you like, is the hands-on aspect of it. That's the building aspect of it. You know, I'm stumbling forward. I'm bumping into reality. And Seth had a moment where he faced a choice like this as well. There's a very stark moment when I decided to take this path in my life. Yeah. And that was, I went to college in the Midwest, small liberal arts school. We had a, there was some sort of lecture series uh, that was taking place. And uh, this woman who was an academic from uh, Northwestern was coming to speak. And it was a big deal. It was a named lecture series. There was like, you know, typical pomp and circumstance, dinner the night before, stuff like that. Uh, it was my senior, junior, junior, senior year. And I got invited to uh, the uh, the dinner and went to that. And then I went to the speech. And this is a woman who studied welfare, I guess. And, and that was kind of her um, her area of expertise. And it was in the chapel on campus. It was packed. There must have been four or 500 people in there, standing room only. She gave a very academic speech. And she kept promising that she would have some sort of like policy Right. You know, some policy ideas, something at the end. There's a payoff. Stick with me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Stay with me. So, you know, this super pie in the sky, studying from afar kind of thing. And she ended up having some, it was super lame. It was like, we should value, we need to value something more. And it made no sense. It wasn't actually a policy right. idea. And I remember at the time thinking, well, that was underwhelming. <laughs> Three days later, there yeah. was another person coming through campus, college campus. Uh, she was a woman who was a single mother, had been on welfare. She wrote a book about her experience. And I thought, well, this is perfect. We just heard from this academic mm. studies welfare from afar. And uh, I'm going to go and see this, this woman who actually like lived the life. Um, it happened to be in this exact same chapel. And there were like 15 people there. Right. One, she was super interesting. It was a profound yeah. lecture. But what was ultimately profound for me, and I mean, it completely changed my life, was sitting in this room, looking around at these 14 other people that are, are listening to the woman who actually lived the experience. Right. And I said to myself, walking out of that chapel, I want to be in this room. I don't want to be in the room of 500 who want right. to study it from afar. It's, it just, it was an incredibly... At that moment in time, I thought I wanted to go and get a PhD in psychology, which was one of my majors. And right. I mean, it truly Shifted. changed my life. I walked out of there and said that, that I do not want to live that life. I'm going to do something different. Let's start with Silicon Valley and venture in general. What, what has frustrated you about that little ecosystem? God, what hasn't in some respects? <laughs> I mean, I have a, a challenged relationship in some respects with with sort of my Silicon Valley identity. It's been incredibly, it's been great for me, right? I've, yeah. I've done, I've lived a great life and, and uh, it's enabled me uh, financially and otherwise to do things that I, you know, that, that were, are fantastic. Um, but on the flip side, I feel like Silicon Valley, it, it kind of sucks a lot of the air out of the room. It's actually right. one of the things we talk about in the New Builders, one of the key themes actually of the New Builders, which is, this idea of entrepreneurship has been taken over by Silicon Valley. And, and, and that's not uncommon for Silicon Valley. They, they like to co-opt things. We, I should say, like to co-opt <laughs> things and, and sort of pretend like we invented them uh, yeah. and, and kind of make them our own. And, and uh, you know, a hundred years ago, entrepreneur meant any, really any small business owner, right? Anyone, a, a cobbler or a farrier or a corner shopkeeper. And, and uh, more recently, really starting in the 80s with Ronald Reagan, uh, the, the term entrepreneur was sort of overtaken by 
Silicon Valley to mean a tech entrepreneur building a tech right. business. And related to that, really, the, the businesses that we value now in the United States are businesses that have high growth potential. We talk about unicorns in Silicon mm. Valley. And that's fine for my business. That's that's kind of how the economics of venture work. But if you think about the economy more broadly, it's just not a very good economic, broad-based economic model, right? It, it doesn't produce right. um, many companies that are successful. It, it, the math is stark. 66% of venture investments don't return the capital that was invested in them. Um, the structure of venture works because there is a couple high flying companies in a fund and they kind of you know create all the return but again from a broad based sort of economy perspective that doesn't work i like to think about camels not unicorns right they're one <laughs> they're not mythical for, so that's right. helpful um, but they're they're hardier they're sort of the workhorses of the economy and and these mm. are small businesses and this is what we've we've kind of lost in the narrative um, of Silicon Valley. And I, I think for me, that's been the most frustrating thing about the Valley. And it's, it, there's nothing wrong with a technology business that's growing rapidly. And in fact, right. there are many such businesses that that are enablers of small business. Think about all the tools that a small business right. person right. uses. Exactly. Think about the tools you use in podcasting, right? These are primarily venture back companies that have created these sorts of tools. That's amazing. I think that's fantastic. Um, but when we only value those and we don't value the, the shopkeeper and, and the mainstream right. businesses, that's problematic. And that's what motivated Elizabeth and me to write the book. Seth, tell us about the book you've chosen to read for us. So um, I'm going to read a couple pages from uh, a book by Carlotta Perez. It's called Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital. <laughs> this is funny because you've just gone, I'm all about the practicality and it's like, okay, <laughs> right. and here's, a, here's an economic wonk book that you've picked for us. But it's, tell us why. <laughs> As I was telling that story, that was exactly what was going through my head. I didn't know you were going to ask me about that. And so I was thinking, oh my God, did I choose the wrong book? But um, she is fascinating. I hope your listeners will appreciate it. It, it is a bit of a wonky book. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's incredibly practical, right? Unlike the, the lecturer from, from Northwestern that I had referred to in the prior story. So this book was written in 2002. I think it's really important mm -hmm. to think about. Um, she describes the world in terms of these large, uh, technological revolutions that last sort of 50 to 75 years, huge right. shifts in paradigms, if you will. And there's, there, are, there have been five that she's identified from the Industrial Revolution, the Age of Steam, the Age of Steel, Electricity and Heavy Equipment, uh, Oil, Automobiles and Mass Production, and now the age we're living in, which is uh, Information and Communications Technology. Um, and she sort of describes these phases that these technological revolutions go through. One, I just think it's fascinating right. to realize sort of the cyclicality of uh, these technological revolutions. But the thing that really caught my interest was she describes sort of this, as the technology um, sort of becomes available, she describes it as a big bang moment, but you only notice it in right. retrospect, right? You don't know right. it when you're going through it exactly. But she describes this sort of installation period when people are adopting this new technology and there's this crazy increase in production and it, it really changes things. Yeah. And then this deployment period, which is where the technology gets embedded much more deeply, really sort of mm. across society. In the middle of those two things is something she describes as a turning point. And what really struck me is some of the attributes of the turning point are increasing 
uh, wealth inequality, right? Uh Increasing the rise of autocratic leaders, Mm. uh, increasing uh, sort of general societal sort of issues and challenges, right? And and you know these are times of great disruption. She wrote this in 2002. She she was not talking retrospectively about what we were living through at the moment, right? But if you sort of map the timing. We are living through the turning point right, <laughs> right. now. Is, and you would expect everything we're seeing from what you're saying, which is like we're seeing autocrat, autocratic leaders and we're seeing wealth inequality just as she's predicted in the cycle of history. Some books that I read, I, I read with a pencil, right? And I mark mm. it up and I even sometimes have sticky notes and put them on. And I just, I kept underlining sections <laughs> thinking, oh my gosh, like wow. she is writing you know, 15, 17 years ago about today. Mm. And of course, you know, this also fits into history, right? So she, in the book, she's describing this turning point in other eras and describing similar things that were going on. I, I think that humans have two tendencies that I find fascinating. One is <laughs> they believe that the time that they're living through is completely unique, exactly. right? And I think the book does a nice job of describing how there are attributes of the time that we're living through that are uh, not dissimilar to times in previous generations. Um, And then the other thing um, is that humans tend to believe that whatever's happening now is how things will continue to be. Right, a culmination. When in fact, we kind of live the opposite way. We actually pendulum back and forth. There's a, I didn't choose to read from it. There's a great book that has some similar similar ideas called The Fourth Turning. Right. Was written even before this book. And they describe this pendulum back and forth. And so we think that the next generation is going to take on our attributes because we're parenting them, et cetera. But actually, the generations tend to go back and forth, uh-huh. if you think about it, in terms of the attributes that they hold dear, um, because they tend to mirror or reflect the generation that, that came before them, not mimic it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's that famous quote, of course, you know, those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it, which I then saw altered saying those who do understand history are doomed to repeat it, but with irony. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, okay. Seth, this sounds like it's going to be interesting. I mean, I love the subtitle of this book, which is uh, The Dynamics of Bubbles and Golden Ages, which is actually, if you're making this a pop culture book, you'd lead with that title and then uh, you'd swap the title and subtitle around. Exactly. Why don't you take us to the two pages? Was there a particular reason you chose these two pages? The two pages I'm going to read relate to different types of capital mm. um, and capital's role in our economy. And, and of course, it spoke to me for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, you know I'm a capitalist, right, literally by yeah. job title. And so I, um, I think about, obviously, the relationship between capital and production all the time yeah. um, because that's what I spend my time doing. But it, it also relates to the new builders in the book that I wrote. And in particular, Mm. there's a line that I'll get to about halfway in um, where she describes production capital in the language of builders. I I had not read this before we wrote the book. Yeah, I mean, I actually, as I was reading this, I circled and starred that one sentence. You put down the pencil and got up a pen and underlined it in ink. Yeah, like, like, oh, wow, she's describing new builders. And I just, I loved it for that. I just thought, it was a great encapsulation of a yeah, lot yeah. of the concepts that we tried to get through in the new builders in a much, I should say, and I should be very clear. I wish she wrote this book in a more accessible fashion. Like, yeah, this is a, not a very wonky section and it's still super wonky. And so yeah. I would say to your listeners, if they have an interest in this, it was worth going through. Like it was, it's not a long read. It was worth parsing through it. But uh, anyway, 
that's yeah. a little bit of the context here. Well, you've set us up beautifully for it, and I'm glad you've introduced it to us all. Let's hear it then. The two pages, um, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez, read by Seth Levin. Over to you, Seth. Financial Capital and Production Capital. The time has come to make explicit the definitions of finance and production capital, which have been implicit in the previous discussion. Neither refers to the actual capital, but rather to the agents and their purposes. In both cases, the term capital is used here to embody the motives and criteria that lead certain people to perform or hire others to perform a particular function in the process of wealth creation within the capitalist system. Thus, financial capital represents the criteria and behavior of those agents who possess wealth in the form of money or other paper assets. In that condition, they will perform those actions that, in their understanding, are most likely to increase that wealth. They may have interest, dividends, or capital gains, but in the end, by whatever means, their purpose remains tied to having wealth in the form of money and making it grow. To achieve this purpose, they use the services of banks, brokers, and other intermediaries who provide information, perform the contracts, and in general embody the drive to make paper wealth grow. It is the behavior of these intermediaries while fulfilling the function of making money from money that can be observed and analyzed as the behavior of financial capital. In essence, financial capital serves as the agent for reallocating and redistributing wealth. By contrast, the term production capital embodies the motives and behaviors of those agents who generate new wealth by producing goods or performing services. By analytical definition, these agents do this with borrowed money from financial capital and then share the generated wealth. If they are using their own money, they are performing both functions. Their purpose as production capital is to produce in order to be able to produce more. They are essentially builders. Their objective is to accumulate greater and greater profit-making capacity by growing through investment in innovation and expansion. Their power stems from the power of a specific firm and their personal wealth will depend on the success of their actions as producers. The object here is to clearly distinguish between the actual process of wealth creation and the enabling mechanisms, such as finance, which influence its possibility and shape the ultimate distribution of its results. This functional distinction, distinction is essential to the nature of the capitalist system. Financial capital is mobile by nature, while production capital is basically tied, tied to concrete products, both by installed equipment with specific operational capabilities and by linkages in networks of suppliers, customers, or distributors in particular geographic locations. Financial capital can successfully invest in a firm or a project without much knowledge of what it does or how it does it. Its main question is potential profitability, which sometimes, sometimes even just the perception others may have about it. For production capital, knowledge about the product, process, and markets is the very foundation of potential success. The knowledge can be scientific and technical expertise or managerial expertise. It can be innovative talent or entrepreneurial drive, but it will always be about specific areas and only partially mobile. Both financial capital and production capital face risks that vary with circumstances from great to minimal. Yet while financial capital can choose widely how to invest its money, avoiding or withdrawing from risks, which it deems too high for the likely returns, most agents of production capital are in path-dependent situations and must find alternative actions within a limited range, often needing to lure financial capital or face failure. As far as truly new ventures are concerned, innovators have brilliant ideas for which they are willing to take huge risks, devoting their whole lives to bringing their projects to reality. But if finance is not forthcoming, they can do nothing. All these distinctions lead to a fundamental difference in the level of commitment. 
Financial capital is footloose by nature. Production capital has roots in an area of competence and even in a geographic region. Financial capital will flee danger. Production capital has to face every storm by holding fast, ducking down, or innovating its way forward or sideways. Yet, through the notion of progress and innovation is associated with production capital, and rightly so, ironically, when it comes to radical change, incumbent production capital can become quite conservative, and then it's the role of financial capital to enable the rise of the new entrepreneurs. Well, I can see why that resonated um, in the shadow of your book, The New Founders. What's the truth here, Seth, that you want us kind of non-capitalists, non-financial people to understand? Yeah, I think what spoke to me most about this section is that it's back to that room, right? It's the Mm. doers that are really creating the innovation and it's the people with finance that are enablers of that, right? So I'm an enabler of that process. But, and this is this spoke to me in part because of some of the trends we talked about in, in my book, um, we're not doing a great job of connecting finance, financial capital, as, as right. Carletta would, would describe it, with production capital right now, right? There's this gulf between the new builders, the people that are actually building new businesses, yeah. and the, the systems of finance and mentorship. I should also add, uh, that support them. And I think that's, you know, if there's one main call to action in the book that we wrote, it is we need to find better and more in innovative ways to finance new builder businesses. And, I, and this really spoke to why that's so important because financial capital is sort of moving chips around, right? Production capital is creating new forms of wealth and new pathways for individuals and communities. And, and you know, she describes in there how production capital ends up being tied to place. I think she, in some respects, is thinking of that as a bug, not a feature. Right. And it certainly creates more challenges. But I think in our worldview, and certainly what we wrote about in The New Builders, um, it's actually a feature, this idea that people that are building businesses, these new builders that are building businesses, are right. doing so in a specific geographic location with a very deep tie to place. And I think, you know, one only need walk down a main street right. and think about the, you know, the, hopefully there's still a few <laughs> older, right. longer shops that have been there for a while and think about that's the right. tie that that shop has to community and why that's so important. And frankly, you know, pass by the whatever chain store happens to be or many chain stores happen to be on your main street and think about how light those ties are to mm-hmm. your community and to realize why new builder businesses are so important, why production capital is so important. Is there any danger here that you're kind of doing a bit of a Jerry Maguire kind of going, I've seen the light and here's a whole different way to be thinking about this. And the other people in your industry are going, all right, Seth's gone a bit nuts. We'll let him do his thing over there, and hopefully it won't kind of uh, reach over to us because we've got our focus on what really matters and how we're going to make our money. Absolutely. And maybe I'm a hypocrite too, right? Because, you know, I still help run a $3 billion venture fund. Right, right. Um, I think that the mistake would be to conclude after reading the book that I don't think venture is a good model, right? Venture is great. Yeah. I think that for a certain segment of our economy, um, particularly as it relates to the technology economy. I mm. don't want to call it the innovation economy because I think that that's a misnomer, not because Silicon Valley or Silicon Valley style businesses aren't innovative, but because there's lots of innovation going on in other businesses that I think get right. excluded from that term. Yeah. But the truth is only about 1% of businesses take money from venture capitalists. It's a lot right. of money. It's super important. As we talked about earlier, they're enablers. 
the technology mm-hmm. that they create enable other types of businesses. Um, I'm really speaking to that 99%, and more specifically, only about 17% of businesses take money from banks. So right. there's this huge 82% of businesses in the United States that don't take any formal capital, either from venture capital as private equity or from banks. And right. That's the gap that I think we need to address. And that's, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about new financial models that might, you know, go after those sorts of businesses and and some of the challenges that those businesses face in just getting off the ground. And I do believe that there are scale models to do that, but that really describes the challenge, right? And and when you marry that with the lack of wealth in communities that are now the fastest growing communities of entrepreneurs, the average black family in the United States has one-tenth the wealth of the average white family. The average Hispanic family has one-seventh the wealth of the average white family. That family wealth is what's funding that, right? That's where the 82% comes from. It comes from your aunt, uncle, friends, or it comes from from home equity. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is in large part why entrepreneurship has been declining so profoundly in the United States. There are lots of people who have great business ideas that don't have the capital to start their businesses. Interestingly, We've seen through COVID and some of the governmental support programs an uptick in entrepreneurship, right? which is- Because of a freeing up of capital. Yeah. I, I think yeah. it's a, a silver lining to potentially to COVID. Now, some of that I think is people starting businesses out of necessity, right? Mm-hmm. But I think some of that is also people taking, in the grand scheme of things, relatively small amounts of money that came to them from these government stimulus programs and turning around and using that to start a business. So now imagine if instead of- you know, thousand dollar checks, we, we could find, um, we could deliver larger checks to people that really have those great ideas to start a business. What we've done is we've kind of, we're trying to, to drink, uh, by, you know, opening our mouths in a rainstorm a little bit, right? Like yeah. you, you can get some water that way, but you're also wasting a lot. Like what if we just found the right hose mm. and directed that water to the right place? So Seth, what do you see that it takes to be a new founder? You know, what, what myths would you like to put aside going, you actually don't need this, but you do need that? Is there a kind of mentorship map that you could point to going, these are possibly the characteristics of what makes for a new founder? Yeah. Well, I will say that um, passion and purpose, I think, is what's ultimately most mm. important, right? I think that people, and this is one of the things I, I really appreciate about the new builders. We talk about this a bit in the book, is um, new builders don't start businesses based on sort of classroom experiments. Right. There's no whiteboard involved, right? Uh, they're not um, sort of theorizing about potential large markets. They see a problem that resonates with them personally for whatever mm. reason. Um, and they decide they want to build a business out of that passion that they have. And so I think that that's what ultimately drives new builders. Now, I do right. think that um, in particular, there's this myth that Silicon Valley likes to perpetuate of sort of the sole founder, maybe even a dropout from an Ivy League school, right? Yeah, we love those. They're yeah. all young, white, male, hoodie wearing. Um, <laughs> and I think that that myth has some danger. For starters, no one really starts a business alone. And, and even some of the great entrepreneurs that we think about mm-hmm. as, you know, sort of superstar entrepreneurs, you can go all the way back to Rockefeller or Carnegie, or, but also even more recently, um, you know, Zuckerberg, or uh, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, uh, they all had partners, right? Right. They had other people that were very integral in starting their business, uh, not to mention mentors and other people around them. And I think that 
that myth causes people to believe that they need to do it themselves. Mm. And one of the things that we call for in the book is a better uh, support network for new builders, more people mentoring. And in fact, for people listening to the, this podcast and, and you know reading the book, one of the things that they can do to actually be helpful in, in addition to finding ways, and we talk about some of them, to, to fund these businesses is to just lend a hand with some of their knowledge and expertise through a local chamber, through organizations like Entrepreneurship for All that work with these sorts of, mm-hmm. of builder businesses, because that's something that is really needed. And really all the successful programs for funding new builder style businesses pair that funding with tech, what they call technical assistance in that world, uh, right. which is basically mentorship. And that that's so important. And that is one thing Silicon Valley has, they didn't invent the apprenticeship system, but, but they did. Yeah kind of perfect this mentor idea. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's something that it's funny because Silicon Valley celebrates the solo entrepreneur and the lone founder. Um, but on the flip side, they also, uh, you know, talk about these internet networks. Seth, you're speaking a lot to the power of the intermingling of purpose and also profit. I mean, you have to have a profit to be a successful builder or a successful entrepreneur. You're, you're rooting it in purpose how do you find a way for those two to dance together? Because it's so easy for one to become the dominant force and kind of pull something off track or it becomes all about the money or you become a kind of impoverished artist, so to speak, trying to follow the purpose. How do you help people and think about yourself to find the balance between those two key forces? I really feel like we're watching the pendulum swing back to Mm. this balance of purpose and profit, right? If you Mm. go back to uh, 50, 60 years ago, there was more of that balance. And then Milton Friedman came out and said, the only purpose of a corporation is to maximize profits, right? Right. The so-called Chicago School, uh, because he was from the University of Chicago, the Chicago School of Thinking. And and that persisted for 50 years. Um, And it's only been recently, think about the Business Roundtable and and others Mm -hmm. who have come out and and started to say, hey, actually, there needs to be a balance between maximizing profit, but also thinking about other stakeholders. And so Jamie Dimon has been very uh, vocal about this, but a number of other, there were several hundred signatories to the uh, Business Roundtable letter that described uh, sort of this shift away from the Friedman School of Thinking around profits. And so yeah. I do feel like the world is shifting in that direction, which which I think is positive. I also think that um, millennials, if you will, but this sort of this generation that is now, um, you know, a decade into the workforce, starting to get more into managerial positions, starting to start right. more businesses, that seems to be more a part of their ethos is, is sort of mm-hmm. that balance. Um, but there are wonderful examples, even in the tech world, of companies that have found that balance. I'm thinking about you know Etsy or Kickstarter, for example, right. um, who really exist not just to maximize profit, but also um, to maximize purpose. And so I think that that's true. That's becoming more and more true. And I fundamentally don't believe these things need to work in opposition of each other. I actually think that they right. can support each other. Do you have that conversation or can you have that conversation as a venture capitalist? Because surely, you know, the key metric around being a, a venture capitalist is, you know, what's our return going to be on this? You know, just as you said at the start, you know, 66% of investments don't pay out at all. There's probably some that kind of cover their costs. And then you've got that kind of I don't know what it is, maybe 10% that are the big breakthroughs and that fund the rest of the system and fund that. 
Yeah. With that financial imperative, are you able to have conversations around purpose or is it more along the lines, if you can slip some purpose in there, that would be awesome. But really, we're hoping you're going to do a 10x thing for us. Yeah. If you believe that purpose helps drive profit, then there isn't tension. Uh You're absolutely right, right? Where RLPs, our investors, our limited partners, our investors, um, they measure our success based on return return on capital, right? IRR, internal rate rate of return. And so that's the metrics, and that's what we need to drive. But with individual portfolio companies, at least our experience has been that purpose and profit blend together. I'm thinking about, I just was at the NASDAQ a couple of weeks ago, one of my companies went public, a uh, business called Zometry, and they exist to, to do the thing that they're, they're a marketplace for uh, machine shops to make parts for, for companies that need uh, machine parts. Um, right. But they also have purpose around the CEO and the, the co-founder are adding environmentalists and they care a lot about the environment. And so they've built into their business um, systems for offsetting the carbon footprint right. for people that are buying on their platform and, and other things that were driven by purpose, but ultimately were additive to the business. And by the way, I'd add on top of that, that they helped create a culture around a handful of things they care about. In fact, when they went public, they started a, you know, a foundation that was the, the Zometry Foundation that's going to invest in those uh, areas that the company has nice. always sort of rallied around as its broader purpose. And yeah. I think that that's increased employee retention, uh, employee satisfaction, and I think ultimately led to a more successful business, just as one example. And there, there are others, yeah. of course, in the portfolio. I, I realize I, the, you know, I'd asked you the question before around what are the, <laughs> the myths, if you like, of being a founder that you'd like to put aside. And you talked about the, the solo one, which is like, I, you know, I created this by myself and I'm the hero founder. And you talked about the power of relationships and co-founders and that ecosystem around them. What else? What else would you like to alter or adjust in terms of the understanding of what it takes to be a founder? Yeah, I mean, I think the largest misperception, in addition to the ones you just described, kind of goes all the way back to this question of the term entrepreneur and how it's been taken over by Silicon Valley and by technology entrepreneurship. And the value of small business, whether they decide they want to open other locations or stay small, is great, right? And and the truth is, in our economy, 40% of GDP is driven by small businesses, about 50% of employment driven by small businesses, almost despite ourselves, right? Yeah. From a policy level, we don't do a very good job of supporting small businesses. They just don't have a voice. Yeah. Despite that, they're incredibly important and have ultimately been a very successful part of our economy. I think most people don't recognize that. They don't realize that. They don't walk into that corner store and think about the way in which that corner store contributes to mm. their local economy and the broader economy, or for that matter, as they you know are shopping around and there's someone behind the counter considering that that person may be the owner of that store. They likely, if they're the owner, they're also the chief merchandiser. They're probably the bookkeeper. <laughs> they you know they have right. multiple hats, right? It's not yeah, like yeah. when you close up the store because you know the doors close at seven p.m. that their job is done and they they still have more to do. And I think that that is certainly opened my eyes doing this research, spending more time with new builders. In the book, we highlight a a number of new builders. We go deep into their backstories. And and I find myself thinking about that when I walk into stores these days. And and, you know, maybe the person working behind the counter is someone that that owner hired, but maybe it's the owner. And 
I've gotten into some great conversations where I've asked that question, hey, is this your store? Um, and had a wonderful discussion about why did you start this right. and where did the idea come and where is this little thing, you know, yeah, this yeah. really interesting thing come from? Why did you choose that? And they love having those conversations, I think, because it, it makes them feel appreciated and recognized for this work that they do. You know, I heard a podcast the other day that made the point that it's an American-based podcast. They said, look, the U.S., if you include landmass, including Alaska and Hawaii, makes up 2% of the Earth's surface. <laughs> and it feels like it has a bigger weighting than that. And I feel like you're pointing in a similar way to like the, the unicorns that we've all heard of. You know, they're, they're metaphorically 2% of the Earth's surface. And there's all of the rest of it that you're pointing to. Yeah. Seth, how do, what have you learned about what it takes to be a good ally? Because, you know, you are rich, white, male, maybe straight, I'm not sure, but you, you tick a lot of the kind of the actual privilege and the, and the kind of classic profile of the people who succeed in Silicon Valley. You're a champion for this new builder, you know, women, people of color, people who are not necessarily native English speakers or first language English speakers. And, and, you know, I take similar boxes to you. I'm trying to figure out how to be a good ally. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you've learned in the writing of this book and the kind of connecting to this new world. Yeah. Uh, let me mention a couple of things. So it's a great, great question. I appreciate you're asking it. The first is I have been very, very deliberate over the past handful of years now about trying to extend my own network. Mm -hmm. um, find, you know, being in rooms as much as possible where I'm looking for the connections I already have, right? I mean, yeah. we're such a network society and Silicon Valley sort of thrives on network and who do you know and how can you help companies you work with uh, via your network? But I realized that that our networks are, are relatively insular, right? Mm. We all kind of know the same people in Silicon Valley. And so I've spent a lot of time being very deliberate about how do I extend that network to it specifically uh, to people of color, to wit, to more women. Mm -hmm. So I've been very, you know, I, I will seek people out, um, either cold email them, or if, if I have a chance to meet them, or I hear them on a panel, or I'm or I join them right. on a panel or something like that. I'm very deliberately trying to reach out to those people that maybe have different backgrounds than I do. And this day, it's not weird to just jump on a zoom call right and so i think zoom right. has really freed me up for that and i try to have far more meetings every week with new people who are extending my network right or deepening relationships with That's those people that don't yeah. look like me so i do that a lot i think a lot of people in power don't think about their ability to affect other people by just simply extending that network and yeah. oftentimes i will and introduce them to someone else because they right. you know it's obvious that they could could use this introduction or that introduction. And, and that way I'm leveraging my networks, not just we're meeting on Zoom. Hey, thanks. Good to meet you. It's, yeah, yeah. you know, deeper relationships. I take detailed notes. I save the notes. I flag people for follow-up and I'm trying to build that network. So that's thing number one. I think, I think everyone can do that. Just start, right? And then I ask those people, hey, who else should I meet with? And I say, I am trying to meet more founders of color or people of color that are working in business. Yeah. If there are anyone else that you think I should meet, please introduce me. So I've met a ton of people, I mean, hundreds of people that way. Um, so I've done that. And then the other thing is just opening my wallet a little bit, right? And so I, mm. you know, I have limits to what I can invest in just because of the way our venture fund works and we're SEC <laughs> regulated and some other things like that. But um, I've tried to put my money where my mouth is and um, yeah. you know, invest. Some of that's been through Foundry because we've leaned in heavily to particularly funds 
that are led by uh, women and people of color. So we've done a lot of investing there. That's tens of millions of dollars that we've invested in, in that. Um, but also, uh, my wife and I have been doing that, you know, individually, again, to the extent to which we're able to with the fund yeah. rules we have, uh, but to invest in uh, funds or businesses that are led by people of color because, yeah. you know, we want to be helpful. And I think one of the things that I've tried to do is do due diligence, but be trusting, right? And one right. of the things that really struck me when we wrote the book, we were interviewing um, Catherine Finney. She started, she's a longtime entrepreneur, and she started this um, support network called Digital Undivided. And she basically said, look, the U.S. has a you know, multi-hundred year uh, history of not trusting uh, people of color with money. <laughs> and right. you know, that trust actually it's is meaningful. Yeah. yeah. So I try not to go crazy on huge amounts of due diligence. And, and you know, obviously, I want to do some reference checking and things like that. Yeah. But I'm trying to be a little bit liberal, if you will, uh, mm. in terms of where where we invest. And I, I think that that's also something that to the extent to which people have means that they can do. But by the way, there are platforms like Mainvest or others where you can invest a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars, you know, as part of a bigger conglomerate in a, in a business, uh, Main Street business. Uh, and so that that's accessible, not just in, you know, 20 and 50 and hundred thousand dollar increments. It's, you know, yeah. accessible in much smaller increments as well. Seth, I've very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. As a final question, a final broad question, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between us and this conversation? I think that what I would leave you with is what the new builders left me mm -hmm. and, and what they left Elizabeth with, which is a sense of optimism. I think that there is, you know, it occurred to me as we were, we were writing this that, you know, we're talking about the decline in entrepreneurship and all these challenges we have with getting capital to the right people and just sort of the systemic races, all these things that, that are challenging. But I think by the end, I'd sort of, I want to say come full circle, but I had come to realize that these aren't insurmountable ob obstacles. Right that there is a bright and optimistic future. And, and frankly, a lot of that optimism stemmed from the new builders themselves. They were incredibly optimistic folks. And they, they left us, even though we essentially wrote the book during COVID, and, and so we checked right. back in with them. And a lot of them had really struggled through COVID. Yeah, yeah. Um, they'd shut their businesses down and, and had to furlough employees. And, um, but now they're opening back up and they are very, very optimistic about the future. And that nice. optimism was contagious. And I think that's what I would leave you with is that feeling of hope and promise. As you'll start hearing with increased frequency, I've got a new book coming out in January 2022. How to begin, start doing something that matters. Probably can see the connection to this conversation right away. Julie Lithcott-Hames, who was a previous guest on the show, calls it, and here's her quote, piercingly frank, funny, gorgeous, vulnerable, and ultimately really damn helpful, which is a pretty fantastic blurb. So thank you, Julie, for that. The final section of the book, the final section of three, is about crossing the threshold, taking action, moving forward. And one of the chapters in that final section is about making sure you have the right people with you. Most anything worth doing is hard to do by yourself. And I think that's what I'm most aware of now, having gone through this conversation with Seth. To move forward, I need to be doing two things. I need to find allies. I need to find the people I need to support my own ambitions for myself and for the world. And I also need to be an ally, find the people to whom I can offer resource and curiosity and encouragement. If you want to know more about Seth and his book, 
check out the website, thenewbuilders.com. It is a great way of kind of unlocking insight as to what it takes to start a business, to be in control of your own destiny like that. If you don't perhaps tick some of the more obvious boxes about the way it's normally done in inverted commas. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Seth, well, I've got a couple of other interviews to recommend to you. First of all, Matthew Barzan, of course. It was through his introduction that I met Seth, so we should talk about his episode, which is called What to Do with Power. I love my conversation with Matthew. And then the other person I want to recommend is Carolyn Heldman. Her episode is called What It Takes to Be an Activist. This is a woman who really understands the two rooms that Seth was talking about, the room of theory and the room of practice. And she's really found a way to be deeply present in both rooms. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate your presence. I appreciate your encouragement. Thank you to all of you who've left reviews. Thank you to everybody who's passed an episode on and said to somebody, hey, you should listen to this interview or this podcast. Word of mouth is my favorite way to grow the podcast for sure. If you'd like to join a small and elite and gorgeous looking band of really smart people, the free membership site, Duke Humphreys, gives you access to transcripts and to all the past episodes, including some I haven't released. So you're welcome to sign up there. It's at mbs.works and just look for the podcast tab. And I'll finish by just saying thank you. You're awesome. and You're doing great. <laughs>